Talking Therapy from Talking the Bay with Chris Moore. Hello and welcome to the first in a new series of podcasts from Talk in the Bay, a counselling and psychotherapy practice started in Cardiff in 2008. Talking Therapy aims to demystify the many options and choices available to you when you're searching for therapy and a therapist to best meet your needs. And maybe listening to some of those people you'll hear from will help you take that first step. This week we're talking with Mandy Walsh, the founder and director of Talk in the Bay. We'll hear about her specialist areas of therapy, what advice she has for those thinking about therapy, and whether therapists themselves are good at looking after their own mental health. But first we find out that Mandy came to the world of counselling and psychotherapy, like many others, by way of a very different business. I come from a financial services background and I also come from another country, as you can hear. And I moved to the UK when my husband had a job offer here 21 years ago now. And when I left South Africa, I felt I wanted to start a new career and do something very different. So I threw away all my corporate suits and I didn't bring them with me. Um, And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I got here. I ended up studying uh, the counselling and psychotherapy course at the University of Wales. And I thought, well, I'll just start the first year and see if I enjoy it. And I enjoyed it. And I carried on to the second year. And then I ended up doing a master's degree in CBT. Um, And then I ended up doing a supervisor's course. And I suppose around about the same time, I discovered schema therapy, which I loved. And I started to really understand myself and my own problems and issues that I had via the schema therapy. Um, And I thought, this is great. If this can help me, I'm sure I can help other people with it. And that's really, in a nutshell, how I got into it. Well, we'll we'll talk more about schema therapy in a couple of moments. You mentioned Uh about moving to the UK, wanting to leave your previous employment behind. Of all of the options that you looked at when you got here, what was it about counselling and therapy that made you take the next step of, of going into it more seriously? I suppose I did lean towards it probably because my first degree back in South Africa was a psychology degree. What I'd found in in my work as in financial services and also previously I um Prior to that, I'd worked in financial services for about 19 years. But prior to that, I worked as a um, a supervisor in a brick factory. <laughs> and um, I used to have everybody come to me when they had problems. I would ever have people running into my room, closing the door and just offloading. And I don't know why, but I probably somehow thought, well, you know, people like coming in and asking me to help them with with their problems and issues. So I suppose I had a little bit of a leaning towards it from that. Um, and also probably because of my own childhood, I, you know, I was brought up in a home where there was a quite a bit of domestic violence and um, I had an alcoholic father. So I think um, I knew, I knew I had a lot of issues and problems and uh, that I coped in unhealthy ways by just shutting down and, um, and not dealing with things properly. So I knew I had things to work through myself. So not that that's a reason for going into it as a career, but they do say we all are wounded healers in one way or other. Do you think that that quality of being seen as someone who people come to with 
issues or problems, being seen as somebody who might be able to provide them with an answer is common to a lot of therapists and maybe is one of the reasons why they go into the the job seriously? You know, I come across a lot of, because I, I also do a lot of supervision of other therapists. So I do come a lot across a lot of therapists who have previously had their own therapy and found it's you know, such a wonderful journey and so helpful that they've then decided to become therapists themselves. <laughs> it That wasn't quite the route I took. I hadn't had a lot of therapy myself before, um, but then I had, I suppose, processed a lot by my siblings. My siblings, we, I have a, I'm very close to my, my brothers and we talk a lot about what went on in our home, etc., I suppose the word or the phrase wounded hulas comes from somewhere, doesn't it? So I guess that probably a lot of therapists do have some kind of difficulties that that they've had to deal with in their past. It seems to me that a lot of therapists, counsellors, come to the, the job not necessarily as the first step on the road to employment. They seem to come to it from having different life experiences, different um, different avenues of employment. Is that common, do you no, think? That, that's absolutely spot on. I think um, not many people, it's not, not a first career for many people, it's usually a second career. Some people are in similar aligned careers in terms of nursing and uh, caring, et cetera, and then they might come into, um, you know, counselling or psychotherapy. You know, on the course we had, there was an age, a lower age limit, which is probably quite unusual um, in, in terms of studies. So I think you had to be, the minimum age on the course was about 25. You couldn't be younger than 25. And I think most people on the course I did were probably around the age I was at the time, which was about 42 or so. Um, and there were some a lot older. There were some people there studying in their 60s. When you started your training, what mm-hmm. areas of, of therapy were you training in? Started off really as a, 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 the course I did. They t- I think the first year was very much as person-centered training, um, which I found really, really difficult actually because I was a problem solver. I remember being marked down an essay because we hadn't done our CBT training yet. And they were saying, um, I had comments and that, you know, you, you're you branching into CBT before we've taught it. You you need to stay in this person-centered. Uh, and, and, and this is all about being very person-centered. So I did struggle with that, but eventually, you know, I got it. And I, I really am grateful for that year because I think it taught me to slow down and listen, I guess. And that was the first year. And then we went into more of a specialism into the CBT, which I continued into the the master's. You mentioned schema therapy earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you say that that is the area in which you specialize? Oh, yes, definitely. Nowadays, yes, that's how I think that's how I, that is the therapy that I provide to individuals and to couples um, is schema therapy. I um, find it exceptionally good in in conceptualizing people's problems, and then it's got some wonderful strategies. And I think most of the people who come to me have have had you know trauma in their in their in their childhoods, and it's exceptionally good in in, in dealing with that. What is it about schema therapy that makes it the most uh, interesting 
for you? For me, it works. <laughs> I see the results first and foremost. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier that I understood my own difficulties via the schema therapy model. I just think it's it is able to deal with issues from the past. It links the present to the past. So what we don't do in schema therapy is just go back to people's pasts and talk about it. We actually look at the triggers and the difficulties they're having in the present and then link those back to the past and deal with it that way. So it's like if it's, you know, golden thread from the present. So if you have a a trigger, for instance, um, in the present, and that makes you feel, let's say somebody says something to you, it makes you feel not good enough, you can take that thread and you can track it back to childhood where you felt in a similar way. So we work very much with um, people's emotions and body sensations that are going on inside them when they feel triggered in the present and ask them to remember a time in the past when they felt similar. Um, and they, we, we know then if they go back to, you know, a difficulty with a parent, well, they would, let's say demands placed on them or they were told they weren't doing well in, you know, in certain areas, that, that we could link it then and look at what was going on in the past. And what we do then is doing do the imagery rescripting for them as well, which is one of the skills and strategies used in schema therapy. And at what point in your training did you discover it? Oh, I discovered it quite early on, actually. Um, the person who developed uh, schema therapy is a, a person by the name of Jeffrey Young from the US. And when I was still doing probably my yeah my master's degree, I think I discovered Jeffrey Young and schema therapy. And in those days, he used to come to London quite frequently and uh, do workshops. He doesn't do that anymore, sadly. But in the back in two thousand and six, seven, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, round about that time, he was coming for quite frequently to London. So you start often just jump on the train and pop through and and go to the workshops. Uh, and then I started integrating it into my work straight away. In fact, my master's research, I used the schema, schema therapy. It was very much a part of my research. And as far as clients go, is the therapy itself available to people of all ages? Yes, it, it is. There, there are There is a children's area as well as the children's schema therapists. So um, I don't, I haven't done the children's courses. Um, I've done the individual and couples courses, but there definitely are children's therapists as well. And group schema therapy, which is used um, in, you know, like the NHS, et cetera, um, where they would use group schema therapy. It It is available for, for most people, but it is a bit of a postcode lottery in terms of they're not therapists all over the country. So it would depend entirely if you get it, for instance, in the NHS, there will be schema therapists working in the NHS, and there there most definitely are, but there wouldn't be schema therapists in every town and city. Call Talk in the Bay on 029-2010-31173 or find us online on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Talking Therapy from Talk in the Bay, Cardiff. Talking about therapy in general, and you've been doing it for a while now, what is it about the role of helping people that you enjoy most? 
Well, using schema therapy, I think the the best thing about it is it conceptualizes people's problems. So um, you can draw, I can draw a, what I call a mode map. We look at patterns of behavior, which cause are causing people difficulties. And we can draw that in terms of, you know, the unhealthy ways of coping and the unhealthy coping modes and the voice in the head, which are the critic modes, uh, demanding critic and the punitive critic. And also the child modes, which there's the a vulnerable child mode, an angry child mode, um, and an impulsive child mode. So those are the three main child modes. So on a piece of paper or um, on a on a whiteboard, usually I can draw those, and people look at that and they say, "So that that's what's been going on all this time." And I say, "You know, yes. What we need to do now is grow your healthy adult mode." and give you more healthy strategies to utilize. So these unhealthy coping strategies or coping modes are, will not come and, you know, kidnap you and get in the way, et cetera, of getting your needs met because it's unhealthy modes are preventing people getting their needs, prevent people from getting their needs met. And then you bring it into the, the couple's um, therapy where you've got two people and you show the clashing of the unhealthy coping modes. So if you've got um, a person who gets very angry when their needs are not being met and then you've got somebody else who detaches uh, and avoids when their needs are not being met, it's going to be a, a continual pattern um, of both of them not getting their needs met because the more the one gets angry, the more the other one detaches. Once we stop and slow down and show them that and they really want to make the changes and heal the relationship, it's just wonderful to watch. It's funny you mention about the voice in the head. I used to manage radio presenters. I used to talk to them about when you're on the air and you are thinking about what you're going to say next. And I would talk to them about the voice in the head if you're coming up with the next link or you're writing the next social media post and the little voice in your head says, do you think that's the right thing to do? Or do you think that's the right thing to say? The chances are it's not. I found that really useful because I would do it myself as a, as a radio presenter when you think I'll say this next and then you think, should I? And if you have to ask yourself if you should, you probably shouldn't. And for a lot of the, the people I was managing, they had never really considered the voice in the head. And some of them didn't have a voice in the head. And I guess it, it, the same goes with, with therapy when you're talking to people about listening to the voice in your head. Some people don't have one and some, I guess, don't listen to it or can't listen to it. Is that is that fair? I think, yes, I 100% agree with you. I think, and and I think it sounds like what you're talking about, quite a healthy voice. Um and I think what if people don't, if they say they don't have a voice in their head, uh, what I usually say to them is, well, let's just imagine that we had an x-ray machine at that point in time when you felt you know, triggered and behaved in that way. If we had an x-ray machine and could capture what might be in your head, what do you think it would be? And usually that's a way into them because I think we all have a voice in our, you know, voice in our head. Um, but the voice in the therapy room that's more important um is the the critic voice and the demanding voice. So if it's too critical and too demanding, we want to just tone it down until it becomes healthier and say, you know, you mentioned What's the voice in your head saying? Is it warning you that this might might not be the right thing to say? 
and you then look at what you want to say and think, mm, maybe not, maybe it's not quite right, and you can adjust it. Or maybe you look at it and you say, yeah, that's okay, but that's healthy. <laughs> but when it's unhealthy and it's saying you're useless, you're never going to achieve this, you know, you're going to mess this up, whatever you do, that's too critical. Because a healthy voice can, is nurturing and caring. Um, a critical voice is not. It's too critical. So you spend your time counselling and, and advising and listening and talking to others. How do you look after your own mental health? I'm fairly good at that. I never. I don't think I used to be, but I think I'm fairly good at that. So um, nowadays I take two quite long breaks a year um, and pop off to Mallorca some of the time I um, go and swim in the sea every day, um, things like that. Do I do a lot of walking as well. Tend to do, do ten minutes of yoga every morning. I, um, you know, meet with friends. I go out for nice meals. I do all sorts of things um, to keep myself in a good place. And I, I listen to, you know, I listen to my body and I listen to the voice in my head as well. That's telling me you, you're going to burn out. And the one error I used to make, I also have uh, my own therapist um, that I speak to, even if it's once a month or once every two months now, I check in with her. I used to think, um, you know, once I, when I was feeling strong and good, I'd take on more and more work. And that, that was actually um, not a good thing because I think we have that sort of danger point of, oh, we're feeling better now, take on more and more work. But I certainly, you know, like everybody else, I um, sometimes our, our cup gets starts to get quite full, and we have to notice it and do something about it. And we can't look after as a therapist. You can't look after other people if you don't look after yourself first. So you've worked with and and you've employed many therapists. So over the years, do you think, by and large, therapists are good at taking care of themselves? I think most people are. I think they. They taught that on courses that they have to take care of themselves. But I guess um, it's awareness, isn't it? And, you know, a therapist needs to be aware. And if you can't be aware of your own well-being, I don't know how you can really care for others. So I think it's I think I'd like to say most therapists are good at taking care of themselves. And I imagine this is where the regular supervision sessions come in useful because it gives them the chance to have themselves counselled, if you like, and to offload anything that they have on their minds. Yeah, supervision is something that's compulsory for for therapists. So I would imagine a, or I would hope that most good supervisors would pick up if their um, supervisee was overwhelmed or not dealing things very well or there was a change in them oh, and we all will have to uh, we all have things we need to deal with in life you know just like everybody else does so it's just being super careful though how easy is it to switch off can you leave it at the door i can yes i can um i used to struggle many years ago when i first started i worked in a school for a while and i struggled that was the time when I did find it difficult, especially if it was school holidays. And I knew that some of these children were in homes that were not happy homes. And so I found that difficult. Other than, you know, people who are going through really, really difficult times. Well, I suppose a lot of people coming to therapy are going through very difficult and traumatic moments. I have discovered, I guess, through my work I found a way to be able to just leave that 
I'm not saying it doesn't pop into my mind, but I can find a way to deal with it. And one last question. What would you say to someone who has maybe acknowledged to themselves that perhaps they need to talk to someone about issues they may have, but find the whole idea of therapy frightening? What would you say to them? I guess it is frightening. You know, if you've never done anything like this before, I'm sure it's pretty scary for many people. I I guess I would say, you know, take that first step because it can be life-changing. Since since our pandemic, so much has been done online. So if you find it too scary to actually go into a therapy room, book an online session, um, and then you can always, you know, transition into face-to-face therapy if you want to. But it's well worth it. Talking Therapy is a Chris Moore media production for Talk in the Bay. That's it for this edition of Talking Therapy. Don't forget to click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any of our future shows. And if you'd like to leave a five-star review, that would be much appreciated. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.